As we're beginning uh, worship this morning, I wanted to ask if any of you have ever uh, been in a situation where you knew, like, pretty certainly that you were way in over your head. Uh, I, I definitely have. For me, uh, one of the clearest moments of that was my first day of graduate school. Uh, for my, for my uh, bachelor's degree, I went to a small private Christian college uh, where pretty much everyone was already a, a Christian and already kind of believed all of the same things. And for graduate school, I went to the University of Missouri, uh, Mizzou, which is a big state school. And I, I studied religion there, but I did it at a state university. So I was actually often in my classes the only person who would identify themselves as a Christian. And I remember my very first day of, of class, we were sitting in the classroom waiting for the class to start, waiting for the professor to get there. And these two guys who were in my program that I had just met, I was really trying to impress and hope they would be my friends, uh, started talking about what they thought this class was going to be about. And uh, we all had essentially the same degree, like we all had bachelors in religion, but most, I would say probably 75% of the words they were using, I had never heard before and didn't know what they meant. And I started getting really nervous because I realized I'm way in over my head and I don't think that the education that I received at my little Christian school prepared me for, for this. And, and so for really the first several weeks of graduate school, I was... I was very overwhelmed. I was very nervous. I wasn't sure I'd made a, the right decision. But early on, something happened because, you know, we would start sharing about who we were. And I said, you know, I came from this small private Christian institution. I kind of grew up in the church my whole life. And I wanted, to, I wanted to be in a place where I could be challenged, where I could be around people that didn't all already agree with me and kind of learn from people that, that I might not see eye to eye with. And so they, they kind of started as a joke calling me the department's token Christian. They said, you know, every religion department should have at least one Christian in it. JR is our token Christian. And everyone would kind of laugh at that. But it actually made me feel really good because being the token Christian kind of told me where I fit in the department. It was suddenly okay if I offered a perspective from, from my Christian upbringing because I was a token Christian. That was what I was supposed to do. And so being the token Christian actually gave me a lot of confidence and helped me feel a way more comfortable in that department as that year wore on. So everything was great. I ended up coming to love the program, made some great thing, uh, friends there, and that first year was really transformative for me. And then in the second year, I met this guy named Tom. It was his first year of the program, my second year of the program, and we were sitting in our first class of the year, his first class of graduate school, and we were going around and talking about ourselves. He said, well, I, I came from this, you know, small private Christian college, and I came here because I wanted to learn from people who don't see the world the same way I do, and, you know, just kind of get some better perspective. And I was like, what a jerk. <laughs> who does this guy think he is coming in here? Doesn't he know that I'm the token Christian in this department? Like, we don't need him. And so um, I remember after class kind of hanging out with some of my other friends, and I was like, man, that Tom guy, like, he's the worst. <laughs> and they were all genuinely confused. They were like, you mean that really nice, cool, friendly guy, Tom, that was at the other end of the table? I was like, yeah, total jerk, right? Now, in retrospect, it's easy for me to see why Tom made me so mad, right? Because, he, you know, he threatened my position in the department. Uh, but I can t tell you, in the moment, I could not see any of that. All I could see was that this guy was the worst. And so I told you that story because today we're going to talk about anger. And we're going to talk about why we get mad. Okay? I don't think many of us have a problem knowing if we're mad. But I think a lot of us actually really do struggle to know why we get mad. And today we're going to talk about what why we get angry, what makes us angry, and more importantly, what we do when we get angry. Because believe it or not, uh, anger actually can be an opportunity for us to grow. It can be an invitation for us to slow down and take a 
difficult and deep look inside of ourselves and find some places uh, that are broken inside of us, find some places that need God to heal us. And if we will learn to listen in our anger, we can actually find uh, a lot of hope and life. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to begin by standing and singing together and celebrating uh, this God who speaks to us even and maybe especially in our anger. So please stand with us as we begin. So we are beginning a series today that I am very excited about. Uh, it's called Empathy for the Devil. And we are going to spend six weeks looking at some of the most infamous villains and ne'er-do-wells of all time. Uh, some of the most the most infamous villains of the Bible, people that we typically write off. And I, I've grown up in church all my life, and I can tell you that whenever you hear the stories about these people, they're sort of just like the boogeyman of the story. Like, they're just bad, and they just sort of sit over in the corner and do bad stuff, and then that's the story. We, we typically tend to focus on the heroes of the stories. Uh, but if we will give these villainous people a second look, we'll actually find often that they're a lot more like us than we really enjoy admitting that we see a lot of ourselves reflected in them. And that, that's the whole idea of empathy, right? Empathy is the ability to understand someone uh, without necessarily agreeing with them, and particularly with these villains that we we're looking at. We're not trying to, you know, give them the wicked treatment. If you've ever seen Wicked or read the, the books about the Wicked Witch of the West from Wizard of Oz, where it's like, oh, actually, it turns out she was the good guy. Like, that's, we're not doing that. We're saying that, no, what these villains did is unquestionably wrong. Um, but we're asking, why did they do it, right? Why, if, if they really are people, just like you and me, then, then, then how come, like, what did they do in their lives that led them to the point that they felt that what they did was really the best option that they had? And if we can understand them, if we can practice some empathy, then maybe we can actually see some of the seeds of that same villainy living in our own hearts. And we can begin to turn away from those things and turn back to God and find life. So we're going to begin at the beginning of the Bible with Cain, the first murderer, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. And uh, if you grab one of the free Bibles out of the back, you can find Genesis 4 on page 5. Like I said, it's right at the beginning. Uh, now, as you're turning there, Cain is the son of Adam and Eve, the two first people. And God had created them. God had put them in the Garden of Eden. And then they disobeyed God. They were unfaithful to God. And so God exiled them from Eden. And they've been living now east of Eden, outside of the garden, outside of God's provision. And uh, this is the story of their children. So let's read together beginning in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 4. Scripture tells us that Adam had sexual relations with his wife Eve and she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, with the Lord's help, I have produced a man. And later she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. And when it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Uh, Abel also bought, brought a gift, the best portions of his firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right, but if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. One day, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. All right, Cain, the first murderer. God accepts his brother Abel's offering. God rejects his offering. And it seems, it seems to be because, uh, in fact, there's plenty of commentators that say that uh, it's because Cain uh, only just brought some of his crops and Abel brought the first, you know, the best of his flock. And Cain gets angry that God did not accept his offering, so he kills his brother. 
The moral of the story seems to be, I don't you know, don't be a hothead or something, right? Give your best to God, something like that. It's interesting, though, if we go back and look at uh, what God says to Cain, it seems to be a little bit more complicated. I want to just go back up to where uh, God comes to Cain. So he says, uh, why are you so angry? Now, this is God, so God knows why Cain is angry, right? So this question isn't really for God. This question is for Cain. God's asking Cain if Cain knows why he's angry, right? He says, why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. Now, that seems weird because it, we thought Cain was already rejected, right? That, that, his, that when his offering was rejected, that meant God was rejecting him. Except here, God says, if you do what is right, you will be accepted. And then he goes on and he says, be careful, sin is crouching outside your door, and you have to master it. So what God is talking about with Cain doesn't seem to have anything to do with the offering that Cain gave in the past. It's all future-oriented. It seems as though something is about to happen, that there's some kind of crossroads, some kind of choice that is in front of Cain, and this is where God is focusing all of his energy and his attention. And Cain's anger seems to be the key. Because he keeps saying, hey, why are you angry? Have you thought about it? Do you know that you're about to make a decision that's going to have important consequences? Sin is crouching at your door. So, so in other words, God rejected Cain's offering, but he doesn't seem to have rejected Cain. He seems to be insisting that somehow Cain hasn't been rejected yet, and this choice that is before him is going to weigh heavily on whether he is accepted or not. And that's why God says, if you do what is right, you'll be accepted. Be careful right now. So what is going on here? Well, it has to do with Cain's identity. If you go back to the, f- the first part of Genesis chapter 4, uh, l- this is, um, as an older brother, I really relish this, okay? Um, let's go, go ahead and go back and read. Uh, so, so again, it says, now Adam had sexual relations with the wife Eve, and she became pregnant. Now listen to how Eve speaks about her son's birth. When she gave birth to Cain, she says, with the Lord's help, I have produced a man. And the word Cain in the Hebrew, it means strength or spear, right? So this is, this is a good kid. She's very excited, very proud of this. Oh, and then by the way, she also had another son, and she named him Abel. Abel is the Hebrew word for like vapor or mist. It's, it's, what they, it's how they refer to that like dew that's on the ground that the sun burns away, Right? So I'm not sure who the favorite child is here. Like, it's a little hard to tell. Is it, th- is it strength and spear, or is it, like, vapor, right? Is it, with the Lord's help, I have produced a man, or is it, like, I don't know, yeah, I had another kid, too, right? Cain is the firstborn in his family, and even his name says to the world that he is the most valuable son. And particularly in the ancient world, the firstborn child represented all of the hopes and dreams of the family. They sort of embodied for the family the evidence that they were going to live forever. And if if you know the story of Genesis 2 and 3, when Adam and Eve disobey God and are exiled from Eden, uh, their consequence is death. They go from being immortal to being mortal. And so Cain is the evidence for them that at least even though they might die, some memory of them will live on. He's the evidence for them that they will continue in some small way to be eternal. All of their hopes and dreams and aspirations for the future rest in Cain. Oh yeah, and then they also had Abel. Imagine, I mean, maybe you don't have to imagine, maybe you came from a family that's kind of dynamic, right? Imagine how Cain learned to carry himself. Imagine how he learned to treat his brother, because his name, his identity, strength, 
spear, firstborn. It, it situated him and his family, sort of like in graduate school, token Christian kind of helped me understand how I was to be, right? And so God decides to push on that a little bit and see, is this healthy? Is this a good way for Cain to live? So one day, without any explanation, God never tells Cain, God never tells Abel, as far as we can tell, God just doesn't accept Cain's offering. And he does accept Abel's offering. Cain rejects the strength, the spear, the firstborn. He rejects his offering without even an explanation. And in the meantime, he accepts vapor, mist, forgettable, secondborn. Who cares? He accepts his? And Cain loses it, right? He freaks out. He gets enraged because God has challenged his identity as the firstborn, as strength, as most valuable, as most important. Now, friends, this, this is why we get angry, right? Uh, psychologists call anger a secondary emotion, okay? which means that anger is always caused by something else. There's always something underneath your anger. Uh, so so uh, you could think of anger as that warning light on your dashboard in your car. You're driving around and then the light comes on. And what you're supposed to do... All right, this is going to go well. <laughs> what you're supposed to do is relatively soon pull over and get that checked out, right? Because the light says there's a bigger problem under the hood that you need to figure out and fix before something bad happens down the road. Well, that, that's actually how anger functions. When we get angry, it's like a warning light saying, hey, there's something wrong under the hood, and we need to stop and figure out what's going on. We need to figure out what's causing that anger. Because sometimes it's good stuff. Like, sometimes, sometimes anger is right. Uh, when, when someone hurts someone that you love, you probably get angry about that, right? When you hear about injustices in the world, you probably get angry about that. And we should get angry about those things because when we see injustice, when we see pain, we know that that's not how the world was meant to be. That's not how it was created to be. So there's something wrong. There's something that doesn't fit right. And it makes us angry. The problem, though, is that anger is an emotion. And emotions are inherently non-rational, right? I mean, reason is like what our brains do. An emotion is more like what our hearts do, right? And, and I'm not trying to prioritize one or the, over the other and say, like, you know, brains are better than hearts or any of that. Don't hear any of that. What I'm saying is just like, I mean, we all have that friend, or if you don't, maybe it's you, that doesn't seem to have any emotions. Like, they're just like a purely rational person, and they say things, and you're like, you can't just say stuff like that. You're going to hurt someone's feelings. And they're like, what's a feeling, right? <laughs> the opposite is true in our hearts, right? Our hearts don't think. Our hearts don't reason. Our hearts just feel. And so, again, sometimes when you feel something, it's a, it's a good and right and appropriate emotion. But sometimes it's not, and your emotions don't care. They don't want to think it through. They can't think it through. They just know how to feel. And so our anger, our anger is triggered by good things and bad things, by helpful things and hurtful things. And our anger can't tell the difference. All it's doing is flashing on the dashboard. And you don't know whether you have a legitimate engine problem or whether there's some faulty wiring from the manufacturer that you just got to go and pay $400 to get fixed, right? You don't know. You don't know which one it is. All you know is that you're angry. It's because it's a secondary emotion. It's saying something's out of place here. Something doesn't fit. But sometimes the thing that doesn't fit is me, right? Sometimes I have constructed an identity 
that is a false identity or an unhelpful identity, like my token Christian identity in grad school. It did some good, but it actually started causing me to treat other people badly when they challenged that identity. That guy Tom, right? Like Cain, his firstborn identity led him to injustice when it was challenged, which means there's, there's clearly some kind of a problem there, right? And anger can be, if we will let it be, an opportunity to slow down, pop open the hood, and figure out what's going on, which is why God comes to Cain. Why he challenges him in the first place, and then he comes to him. And then look, look, look again at what God says to him. Cain, why are you so angry? Can we go ahead and put that up there? The verse? Yep, there we go. Thank you. Why are you so angry? Right? He's, again, God knows. God knows why Cain is angry. But Cain doesn't seem to know why he's angry. Cain doesn't seem to be able to understand that his identity has been challenged. And it's actually, it's actually a hurtful, unjust identity. One that's not going to do him any good in the long run. So God says, why, why are you angry, Cain? Have you stopped and thought about this? Because sin is crouching at your door. It's eager to control you. But that doesn't have to be how the story goes. God's like, look, that you know, it doesn't have to end badly, Cain. You can figure this out. Uh, several years ago, I was, I was, uh, my wife and I were visiting my best friend, and uh, his son was about two at the time, and he had that, uh, you know that little plastic toy, it's usually like red and blue, and it's got different shaped holes in it. You can put the little different shapes, and that helps kids learn their shapes and stuff. We had that toy, and like he had the circle, and he had it in the star hole, and it wasn't fitting, and he just kept like, you know, at first he was, oh, this should go. And then it kept not going, and then he started, like, slamming it. And then because he's two, he started screaming, and it was like the end of the world that, you know, the shape would not be the shape that he wanted it to be. And my best friend looked over at him, like, we were just talking, and he looks over, he's like, hey, man, don't freak out, figure it out. And I laughed. I was like, man, that's such a perfect, like, motto for when we get angry. Hey, don't freak out. Figure it out. That's essentially what God said to Cain. Hey, don't freak out figure it out. Because that's what we tend to do when we get angry. We don't stop. We don't pull the car over. We don't pop open the hood and see what's going on. We just freak out. We just keep going. And just like God said to Cain, God says to us, sin is crouching at your door and it wants to control you if you don't get this handled. If we're not careful, our anger can make us a lot like Cain. Now, I know you want to push back and say, listen, I get it, I get angry, but I've never murdered anyone, right? There is a substantial difference between me and Cain. Well, Jesus may not think so, so much. Flip over to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, again, if you have one of the Bibles out of the back, that's on page 579. This is in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and uh, this is where he is reinterpreting many of the Ten Commandments. So he said, you have heard it was said this way, and he quotes one of the Ten Commandments, and then he gives sort of a, a new, more challenging, deeper reinterpretation of the commandments. So I want to read with you what he says about anger and about murder. Jesus says, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder, right? If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court, and if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So, if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, you're coming to church, right? 
and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled with that person and then offer your sacrifice to God. Now, there's a lot going on here, but just briefly, Jesus says, it is, it is entirely possible to be angry with someone in a way that you sever relationship with them, right? That you cut them off from you. We say they're dead to me, right? And what that means is that we have, we have cut that person off from any kind of meaningful, significant relationship with them. We might, you know, smile at them or make some very shallow small talk, maybe. But we don't open ourselves to them in a way that lets them meaningfully challenge us or speak into our lives. For all practical purposes, they are dead to us, right? We don't have any kind of real, meaningful, mutual relationship. And Jesus says if your anger manifests against other people in that way, it's essentially murder. It's doing the same thing that Cain did. You're, you're killing them. And, and the reason that matters, Jesus says, it, is it actually shapes how we interact with God. Because we can't separate love of God from love of our neighbor. And so Jesus says, this is actually so important that if, if, you're, if you're going to worship, right, he says taking your sacrifice to the temple. We'd say, if you're, again, if you're coming to church, right, and you remember that you are unreconciled with someone, if you have not done everything in your power to be at peace with them, if you're harboring anger against them, you're going to be wasting your time in church. You need to go and make that right first. Now, this is, uh, this is not Jesus saying that God's like not going to Listen, God's going to sit with his hands over his ears and be like, la, 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 while you're singing. That's not, that's not what's going on here. What Jesus is actually telling us is that God is really much more different from us than any person on the planet, right? If you want someone who's going to challenge your identity, who's going to insist that the way that you are is not 100% holy and right and good and true, that's God more than it's any other person. And if we cannot even learn to be in relationship with a person that we can see, that we can touch, that we can high-five, who challenges us. How can we ever be open to God? What we'll actually end up with is a God who uh, is more, really more of a false God who just tells us that we're right and good and true and everyone should always listen to us all the time, right? A false God. Because we cannot have our identity challenged. Because we've cut people off who would do that. And Jesus says, this, this is the cost of anger. You end up isolated. You end up alone. You end up, uh, you end up unholy. You end up un, uh, unrenewed because God can't speak to you because you haven't learned how to be spoken to. And anger, anger is an opportunity. It's an invitation to learn how to open ourselves up, to learn how to do that difficult process of discerning, is this a good anger or a bad anger? Is there really a problem here? Or, or you know, am I in the right? And if we don't do that, if we cut people off, we miss transformative, life-giving relationships. Um, that best friend that said, don't, don't freak out, figure it out, uh, that is that Tom guy from grad school. It turns out all my grad school friends are right. He's not a jerk. It turns out I was the problem. And Tom and I only spent two years in that grad school program together. And I graduated over a decade ago. And since then, uh, he stood as my best man at my wedding. I'm the godparent, uh, Amanda and I are god, godparents to his children. Uh, he continues to pastor me to this day. He's one, of, he's one of my very short list of people that when I just don't know where to turn, I turn to him. And I, like, if it had been up to me, I would have missed that. Because of a two-year school program, 
where I felt a little bit insecure. How foolish is that? What risk I ran by not being able to listen in the midst of my anger. I almost missed out on one of the most important relationships I've ever had in my entire life. And I would be a totally different person today. I'm certainly a much worse pastor were it not for Tom's continuing presence in my life. But it almost, my anger almost costed me that friendship. Friends, our anger, we need to be clear, our anger is not a sin. Okay, anger is a God-given, God-created emotion. And it plays an important, healthy role in our lives. But our anger is dumb. Okay, it does not know the difference between healthy, good, holy, righteous anger against injustice. And then, you know, the unhealthy stuff that's really more about the mess that's inside of us. Our anger can't tell the difference. It just knows how to get angry. It is up to us to heed the warning from God. Why are you angry? Don't you know that sin is crouching at your door? It is up to us to hear, heed the words of my best friend, Tom. Hey, don't freak out. Figure it out. Because, friends, if we can do that, we, we, can, learn, we can learn to listen to our anger. We can learn to understand uh, what's going on inside of us and where are the places that God is actually calling us to be transformed. Where God is actually seeking to assuage our fears and encourage our insecurities and make us more healthy, whole people. That's what's at stake for us. So I want to invite you to the communion table this morning. Because this is a journey that we cannot make on our own. And thanks be to God, we do not have to. When we come to the communion table, it is Jesus standing before us as God stood before Cain, saying, why are you angry? Don't you know that sin is crouching at your door? But it doesn't have to control you because Christ has freed us from sin. And by participating in this communion meal, we find the grace to listen in our anger, to listen for God speaking to us. This meal invites us to the table that Jesus shared with his disciples the night before he was killed. When he broke bread and he said, this is my body, it's broken for you, take and eat it all. When he passed a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood, it's poured out for the forgiveness of sin, take and drink it. Now, you don't have to be a member of Catalyst to receive communion with us today. If you are willing to pause in your anger and to listen for the voice of God calling to you, speaking to you, insisting that you be more like him, slow to anger and quick to show mercy, then you're welcome to approach the table this morning. Here in a couple moments, I'm going to pray for us. And, uh, and then as you're ready, you're welcome to come forward. Uh, Ryan, I totally forgot. Do we have an examine? Okay, we do. Excellent. Um, I'm trying to get back out of the creed mode. So we were saying the creed every week for communion. We're going to do a prayer of examine before we come to the table this morning. I'm going to ask you four questions, and I'm going to invite you to just reflect prayerfully on them. I'm going to ask you to think about the week that brought you here. And some of you might find some of those places where you have unreconciled resentment that maybe. Uh, maybe the next right thing that you need to do out of this is to go and, and, and do everything in your power to be at peace there. And then ask you to think about the week ahead. And again, it's going to be a lot about 
uh, where do you get angry? And, and, and what, does that, what does that look like? And what, what is God calling you to do in the midst of that anger? And then we're going to pray together. Then as you're ready, you're welcome to come forward. So think about the week that brought you here. When in the last week did I listen to God speaking through my anger? Were there times where you chose not to freak out? Now, when in the last week did I act out of anger? When did you ignore that dashboard light and just keep on driving? Now, think about the week that's ahead of us. When in the next week will I be tempted to act out of my anger? Is it a particular space, particular person that you know you're going to have to interact with? How can I pause and listen to God's invitation in my anger this week? What does it look like for you to, for you to do that? Create some space to really look inside yourself and listen and figure it out. All right, let's pray together. God, thank you for this uh, good news that we have heard this morning, that we have seen in the story of Cain, uh, that you do not leave us alone or at the mercy of our anger, that in fact you come to us and speak to us and offer us the chance to pause, not to freak out, but to figure out what's going on inside of us. Uh, that, that is a difficult thing to do, and, and, and above all, we are thankful that this is not something that we do alone, that you do this with us, that your spirit speaks to us and makes us new, offers us hope. And so we approach your communion table this morning 
as a people who need your presence, who confesses that were it up to us, we probably would never stop. We would probably just cut off the people that uh, anger us. We ask that these wafers and juice become a spiritual food, that, that in the midst of these moments we uh, experience your grace and we hear your voice speaking to us as you spoke to your son Cain. Why are we angry? Do we not know that sin is crouching at our door, wanting, wanting to control us? But through your power and through your grace, we know that that does not have to be how the story ends, that we can, by the power of your Holy Spirit, master it and so we ask for that power this morning. We pray these things and we approach your table in the name of your son, Jesus.